from the hosts that brought you to Coding Westworld and Westworld the Recapables comes the Ringer Prestige TV podcast on Westworld. I'm Joanna Robinson. I'm Danny Heifetz. And I'm David Shoemaker. Welcome to Westworld Season 4 in the Prestige TV podcast feed, where we're going to break down every episode of Westworld Season 4. Every Monday, the day after the show comes out on the Prestige TV podcast feed. Wherever you get your podcasts, but get them on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line, he can't wait for the further adventures of Roken. It's Andy Greenwald! Is that Ice Cube Jr.? Mm-hmm. Right? He's Roken, right? Oh yeah, his adventures are just beginning. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait to see where that leads. Andy, it's a beautiful Thursday here in the United States of America. We're doing The Watch podcast and we're here to talk about television, and I got to say, uh, we have a really good one today because we have a show that's debuted today, The Bear, on FX. It's on Hulu. The entire season is up on FX on Hulu. It's eight eight episodes. They're about 30 minutes each. We have Jeremy Allen White, who's the star of that show, on the show, our podcast today. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Pretty spoiler-free. My conversation with Jeremy Allen White did get into some spoilers towards the end of the chat. So if you are... Maybe you want to save that for when you've watched a few of the episodes, but it comes with our highest possible recommendation. We're going to get into the bear in a second. Andy, it's great to see you. How are you doing? I'm okay. It's been a week. We had a, we had a federal holiday on Monday, so yep. we, this is our first pod of the week. Um, it is. That's right. And we missed some news in the, in the interim. We did. We missed some news. Uh, a Star Wars television show ended. Uh, mm-hmm. its, its final episode aired. So we've got some we got some news and notes to get through before we talk about the bear, which I am in complete agreement with you on. It's my favorite thing. What would you like to start with? Would you like to start with the return of Jon Snow? Or I the... think I think we should mention it because this this hit right after we recorded. We did not week. emergency pod this. No, um, and it was pretty. I have to say, pretty okay. It's not shocking news in the sense that. HBO, or it was it was reported by James Hibbard, who has been the guy in the know about mm-hmm. Game of Thrones, dating back to his days at Entertainment Weekly. He reported uh, for, I believe, The Hollywood Reporter, or it wasn't Variety, right? It was, it was THR. Hollywood Reporter, yeah. That HBO is in early development on a, uh, I mean, they're in development on many Game of Thrones spinoffs and sequels and prequels, but specifically a Game of Thrones series centered on Jon Snow's adventures beyond the wall. Uh, so directly picking up the 
canon, the storyline of the uh, Mothership Game of Thrones show. Yeah. Now, not shocking. All of these companies have everything in development. That's the name of the game. Nobody is, to, to, to quote our great generational heroes, Pharrell and Chad Hugo, no one ever really dies. And that's true for fictional characters as well. What was surprising, and I think you and I are in lockstep about this, is the timing of the news leak, which makes me really think it was a leak, not like a, hey, nudge, nudge, James, here's a nugget for you. Because HBO, as a corporate entity at this moment, is pivoting its big guns, its thousand ships in yeah. the lore of George R.R. R. Martin to launch its first Game of Thrones spinoff, House of Dragon, which is premiering uh, in August. And between now and then, there's going to be a ton of, I mean, the, the, the key art was just released. There's going to be more. Um, you know, snippets and clips and things, it's coming and they're coming in hot with it. This doesn't seem to me, look, I'm no PR expert, but this doesn't seem to be the right time to say, hey, but don't worry, remember this other thing? We're going to do that too. It does I feel like not so much seem of, to be that time. It does not seem to be the right time for that. So I think there's two stories here and you can choose which, choose your own path here at where we want to go. There's the creative reasons for the show and our feelings about that. And then there's also the strange sort of industry timing of this news I think either leaking or being snatched or whatever the case may be. So I'll, I'll just throw one other tidbit in there as I was like reading about this. I, I expected to see either crickets from HBO or, or mm -hmm. you know, basically n not a lot of like follow-up reporting here. Did you know that Amelia Clark was on like a talk show and was just like, yeah, that's for sure happening. Kit created the show. I did not know that. I now, did not know that. Now, let me just say, I read that in NME, the British <laughs> music, hmm. music Weekly. So... Perhaps my sourcing is not great, but it does speak to the idea of, you know, Kit Harrington had notoriously had like a complicated relationship with the role of Jon Snow. I think if anyone coming out of Game of Thrones had probably uh, felt the most like, he, you know, like playing the character had cost him something or it just mm. basically had left it all out on the field. And it was hard to imagine him ever going back to that world. Uh, so it's interesting that there is this added layer of this isn't just like, hey, brother, like what, how many zeros would it take for you to come back? It's mm -hmm. like, also like, what do you want to do with this guy? Now, that does speak to the fact that now there's entirely possible that Kit Harrington has a WhatsApp with George R. R. Martin and he's like, what's been going on with this guy day after he saves humanity, his wife loses it and he goes walking into the snow. Mm -hmm. What's going on out there with him? And they've been going back and forth about this but i don't know i mean like game of thrones ended in a way that was so kind of controversial for a lot of the people who love the story i guess i should say that it's kind of fascinating to imagine them doing something that like continues a the mothership thread and b picks up right at the moment where most people were like flipping the table over it is interesting i think i'd like to think that Kit Harrington watched our beloved series, The North Water, and was like, so that's what happens when a British guy walks off into the snow. That's right. He climbs inside the carcass of a polar bear. No spoilers. And so maybe he was like, we could do that too. I, I'd imagine that probably factored into his decision making. And I think you're right to point out that he has a complicated relationship to it. I mean, it made him famous and probably, you know, uh, set him up financially. He met his wife making the show because he's now married to Rose Leslie. But he has been also very candid about um, substance abuse struggles that he went through while making the show and mm -hmm. you know, some darker periods of his life. So I wonder if there's some element of redemption in that to him that he wants to go back to it on his own terms. I would say, and I don't, this may surprise people who know that I generally check out when cynicism checks start getting cashed, 
for continuing adventures of stories that probably didn't need to continue. But of, <laughs> speaking his, of those stories, yeah, get ready. He, it was the most open ended, you know, of storylines in that that last season didn't do anyone any favors. But I think in particularly it did no favors for Jon Snow, who just was kind of lurching from one thing that had to happen plot-wise to another, including ultimately with Daenerys, and then wandered off. Did he marry Daenerys, or am I making that up? When you said that, I was like, could that really have happened? Was that a common law thing? Well, I mean, they're already related, so I don't know how much extra zhuzhing you needed to do to make it official. You know what I mean? He he could have just asked, like, like, a cousin to join the universe. What's that, what's that church that your friends would join to marry you? Oh yeah. Remember like the, fir- the universal like Unitarian yeah. first Vegas, like church of, I get to marry you. Yeah. I was about to say that's what it's like in the eyes of the seven, but then isn't the seven, both the gods in game of Thrones and the super team in the boys. That's right. I'm getting really confused here with our, with our, uh, Lux IP offerings, but I guess I would say that like, okay, like, I, I actually am not uninterested in that character and his adventures with the only people in Westeros who know how to have fun other than the Dornish, you know, the wildlings. Like, cool. Let's get after it. I'm I'm not against it. And I think especially if it is, and I would imagine this is the case, and I say this with no slander towards them, but I would imagine this would be someone else who hasn't, who hopefully has a point of view picking up this mantle, not Benioff and Weiss, who did what they wanted to do with the story they seem and are busy. moving on. They seem, and yeah, they seem super busy. So they got three that, body problems, so. That piece of it, I'm actually fine with creatively. I also think that so far, and we'll see when the floodgates for Game of Thrones spinoffs really open what it what it feels like, but I have some faith in the institutional uh, read the room wisdom of HBO that they will try at least until it becomes, you know, unless until David Zaslav and Discovery prize it out of their creative hands to be thoughtful about what they put out, you know, yeah. and have a reason to do it. So until they prove us otherwise, I'm going to believe that. That said, it's odd because I think the most interesting thing for me this summer, big prestige TV wise, is the launch of a new Game of Thrones show. X many years after the show went off the air, X many years after people were disappointed with it, and trying to do that balancing act that we've seen other major corporations try with you know varying levels of success to continue to give people what they want, but also make the case for it being something new. And so to be trying to do that balancing act this summer and then have this slip out that yeah. that, that, that to make this which does know which is a disservice to both shows, by the way, because it puts the Jon Snow show in the role of, but don't worry, fans. We're gonna still take care of you. Yeah. I mean, it's also a question about I guess this segues into Star Wars too, which is what's a satisfying Jon Snow story? Is mm-hmm. it a like a one-hander survivalist PTSD, like him walking through the snow and trying to make sense of what happened on the last seven seasons of his his character's life? Or is it a new adventure? Or is it, we actually do need you to come back and help Bran oh, run the, the world? Like, I, I it's like, it's, the, it, what they try to do with that is going to be really fascinating. Because I think when we watch, we're gonna, and we're going to talk about Obi-Wan a little bit here, you know, you and I probably fruitlessly have always kind of been like, well, why don't they just make like a cool, like, very contained Obi-Wan as a detective story? Or, you know, this mm-hmm. th- this like little like, small window into Star Wars rather than everything being this mm-hmm. massive panorama. Uh, we'll see, like, Thrones, I think, very consciously is starting with House of the Dragon as a um, huge tapestry. As, as like, this, I, I'm, you know, you, you can 
you can bet that there are going to be like 12, 15 characters and all this like pushing and pulling going on. It's not a small story, but John, I wonder what would be the attraction for, for Kit Harrington. What would be the thing that he's like, I never got to do this kind of thing with him. And I think that would be very cool. I don't know. Maybe this is just guy walks into a rake, but like, I, I feel weirdly optimistic about the potential for it because, in, because first of all, this is, this is why maybe I'm just, am a fool because until you said like he gets called south to help the avengers you know rule right. westeros again that didn't even occur to me that that was even possible like all i was thinking of dude <laughs> i know i'm terrible at this era a terrible i'm like how interesting like he'll make a new society you know and find out find some old runes and legends and it would maybe be cool if john started a commune yeah it's yeah it's 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 uh don draper goes to esalen but cold. yeah <laughs> yeah I, I, i'm totally fine with that um but you know again this is the stuff that that they pay casey ploys and the rest of the executive team big bucks for is to determine how to adjust the tap how much to give when to give it how to how to relate how to enter into it you know and i think that hopefully they are studying what went right and what went wrong with Mm -hmm. disney and lucasfilm because as we've said many times and this is as good a segue as any i guess that like I don't know how much forethought. I would love to find out the truth behind this maybe someday when the books are written. Like Favreau making The Mandalorian really set them on a certain path for what the TV strategy was going to be. And then this year is such an interesting moment of like folding in reworked movie projects like Obi-Wan and then also seeing if they can chart a different path going forward. But I don't think there was a lot of thought into it, you know, at the time, which is what's led to some of the bumpiness in terms of what this property means on TV. You know what I mean? And so for Game of Thrones, thinking about it from the HBO perspective, do we just try to have another mothership with a big story and dragons that spans multiple seasons? Or do we do a series of smaller stories? Or do we do one big one and recurring small ones like uh, Stephen Conrad, um, who did Patriot, is doing Duncan Egg? Yeah. And, you know, that seems to be, at least just from what we understand of the pre-existing material, a tonally, if not totally, different swing than House of the Dragon. So, you know, you bring up you bring up Obi Wan, so we might as well get into that. Last episode went up yesterday on Disney Plus. Uh, it concluded the six episode run. I think that there has been some suggestion from the cast, from Ewan McGregor specifically, that he would love to do it again. But I'm not so sure that's going to happen. It's interesting to watch this show and go back to the Vanity Fair article. Was it Vanity Fair recently that was sort of like a state yep. of Star Wars piece, and Kathleen Kennedy spoke for it and was speaking and she talked a little bit about solo and about this idea of these legacy characters that people hold very near and dear and how it's really hard to basically like redo that without having Harrison Ford without having Carrie Fisher without having Mark Hamill in those roles specifically and i think that they were kind of um splitting the atom a little bit here because Ewan McGregor is still in his in his prime i think and uh, I, I think she specifically said he's exempt from that because they, he can they're not going to recast that swing anymore. a lightsaber. Yes, right. You know, and they're not going to recast that. And, and obviously, Alec Guinness is no longer with us. So we're not going to do anything with that. Uh, although I wouldn't put it past them to be able to reanimate him in some holographic way. So you have the situation where this show is kind of done. It's, it's over with. And I, I think here's where I want to start. After this mm-hmm. episode. I texted a few people that I know of, of varying degrees of relationships to Star Wars. Uh, and 
one thing came up a couple of times with in conversations with people who I know are big fans of not only Star Wars, but especially like prequels or animated series, variety of folks. And I was kind of doing my like riot act complaining list of things that I didn't like about the last episode. And more than once, the response was, yeah, but that's Star Wars. Mm. And I was like, oh, and they, they had examples. They were like, don't you remember in Jedi where it's like, there's this huge fight and then they cut to the Ewoks in the middle of the fight. And I was like, oh yeah, I remember that now. I wonder whether it's me. And when I say hmm. me, I mean capital M-E. Like, I'm, maybe I'm just hanging on to or imagining a version of this that actually doesn't exist. Uh, maybe it's... Right. And that version of it is like the Rogue One trailer, <laughs> but is not actually... There's no empirical evidence that this is ever what Star Wars was. And so... I, I want to start from there just because I'm like, I don't know necessarily if I'm a reliable narrator when it comes to talking about this. Well, I, I think it's the re- I think it's a healthy point to make. And I think it's a healthy perspective. And I think that one thing that definitely differentiates us from the type of fan that you're speaking to and that we're speaking about is that they have, I think, interrogated and or made peace with their relationship with this franchise. You know, it is right. something that is present in their lives. And they're grateful for his presence in their lives. And they can find things to like in that. Or they're they like. t- 10, 15 years younger than us. And the prequels are as important as the right. original films. Yeah. I, I, so I, I think that's definitely true. I think that we are approaching this with a potentially challenging mixture of impossible nostalgia, which is like with our you know Kenner action figures, we think we could have done a better final battle than what we saw on the Disney Plus service last night. Mm-hmm. Um, but also as adult of our age cultural critics, you know, who kind of hope that when given the time and perspective and resources available, something better could come of it. Like with, you know, and and that's also very easy for us to say, because I tried to allude to this last week, and and this has been the, you know, the, the sort of the chatter that I've heard, and that I can also, we can surmise from similar situations. TV, if we always say this, it's not movies. And the analogy we used to make, um, you know, TV is to movies as magazines is to books. Mm-hmm. A movie, at least in the old days, before they just became more TV, you could tinker with and obsess over and, you know, and, and, and really try and perfect. TV has to come out on a schedule. And similar, that was with magazines. Like, we would do our best with a magazine, and we'd have a big monthly closing, and then the magazine would be done, and you'd do it again. And it's, and it's going to be different. And I think it's worth remembering that, um, that, yeah, with luxury of time, it's it's usually time because there's plenty of money at play here with these things. So all of that I think is valid. But I also would push back a little bit on whoever said that this is just Star Wars because of something that happened in Jedi. I mean, when we talk about what we admire and loved and were transported by with Star Wars, it's the first two movies. Mm-hmm. I definitely rock with Jedi. I mean, that was the first one I was fully conscious of. And like, there's a new Star Wars movie. I, was, I mean, I was six years old, but I was like, I went to see it. The first two are the good ones. I mean, they just they just are. And so when you talk about the cutting away, which is maybe a great place to start here, the final confrontation between Luke and Darth Vader in Empire Strikes Back did not cut to a chase scene with a child in the middle of it. It didn't. No. And it's memorable for it, you know, because there was emotion and stakes and didn't, reveals and surprises. Don't they cut, do they not cut to the Ewoks in that? That's the third movie. Oh. I'm talking, talking about, about an empire. You're talking we, about empire. Lose, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that was where you and I were, 
there are plenty of like we could go down a rabbit hole of like what 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 was Riva doing? What was her plan? How mm-hmm. did she get there? All, all that stuff, and that doesn't seem that productive. I think that. Yeah, there are certain things that like I actually have learned where it's just like now we've gotten like however many of the new new trilogy that JJ and Ryan Johnson did, we've gotten several shows. People just can hop planets. And like That's fine. I I'm no longer like how did you and McGregor get off the surface of one planet to the surface of Tatooine right at the moment when Revo was coming out of the desert kind of thing. Like it is what it is. Into the right place. Yeah. Because if I was flying to another planet and I needed to land in Manhattan, I would 1 million percent <laughs> land in Kathmandu. You know what I mean? And be like, guys, which way to Shake Shack? You know, like it, it just, it's a planet. Yeah. Um, the, the thing that really got me was this was a series that essentially, I mean, was building towards one more, we'll get one more Obi-Wan Darth Vader fight. And that was one piece of unfinished business in that, in the original Star Wars movie, when they do fight, I believe Darth Vader's like, the last time we fought, like, you got the better of me. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to see that finally. And we get there. And what was frustrating about it was twofold. And it was exactly those two, two folds were the two things that I think hamstrung the entire series. One, outcome is not in doubt. So what are the stakes of watching these two guys fight other than it's a cool choreographed fight, which, you know, your mileage may vary on whether it was cool or not. The second, it's a TV show, not a movie. So right when it starts to get good, it cuts to Riva chasing a little boy who we know is also going to be fine running through the desert. Mm-hmm. And that's TV logic, man. And it doesn't feel epic because of it. It make, Again, it makes things feel small, which feels like it's the wrong box to have put this in. So this is, I kind of, I don't want to like belabor like how did she do this and how did he do that and why did he say it this way and what's up with Leia? I do think that there's something really interesting in what you just identified there, which is those two threads. And honestly, you know, we know that Obi-Wan doesn't kill Anakin again. Uh, and then whatever, everything that happens afterwards happens because Darth Vader is doing whatever he's doing. So there's like actually a lack of tension in both of those, both of those threads. I think it's easy to be like, why are you guys hung up? on if i was listening i would be like why are you guys so hung up on knowing already what happens to these people like why does that take away from what you're watching i think part of their issue is that the show itself is entirely about reva running after this kid if we had some other kind of like experience with her character if we had some other kind of um if she was given anything else to do other than pursuit I think it would be at least more interesting. But if that's the sole purpose for her character, if every time she's in any scene and it's like, what does she want? It's like she wants revenge against Darth Vader. Well, she doesn't get it. I know that, you know? And so what then is like saving it to the very last second of this series for her to be like, gosh, this was kind of fruitless, wasn't it? Maybe I was wrong to be like seeking out this kind of of justice or whatever. I it, it's like that yeah like that I know I could have told you that like six hours ago. I I don't want to yeah I want to be careful because I don't want to make this about the world we live in and why is this the world we live in because the world we live in demands and expects creators to find inspiring uh, story nuggets in the folds of the couch left behind by previous generations. Right. The best case scenario for that still is Rogue, is Rogue One. One, and that was what I was going to say is that. The, the concept of Rogue One being there is a throwaway line in the movies mm-hmm. and somebody heard that and was like, what was that about? Mm-hmm. And even though we know 
they don't make it. <laughs> Lots of people died getting these plans. You know, that like whatever the line is that is the setup for for Rogue One. It's not about like, well, we know what happens to Cassie and Andor. Now, we may have these same complaints about Andor. I have a feeling we won't just because of uh, the way it's being geared and, and who mm-hmm. wrote it and who's in it and stuff like that. But like, it wasn't necessarily, it's not that their fate is determined, which we do know, but all the stuff that happens up until then and the way the story is told is not. Not only that, Tony Gilroy created some pretty cool, memorable characters who in in an efficient, cinematic way, we were introduced to, understood, liked, cared for, and then felt, felt, sad, you know, felt sad for, felt empathy for. They were fully, fully alive. And they, their individual micro stakes worked in concert with the macro stakes of we have to get the Death Star, we have to figure all this out, right? This series and a lot of this genre of entertainment that I think almost needs its, new, needs its own title, you know, because it's not for everyone. It is not going to break ground. It is going to be mildly satisfying for people who are looking to be mildly satisfied, which again, if you found things to enjoy in this show more than we did, that is awesome. We are pro-pleasure in your television, wherever yeah. you may find it. But my experience watching it really did feel like creatively, it had its arms tied behind its back because the micro stakes were inevitably unimportant next to Skywalker's, right? Mm-hmm. So Reva's journey, whatever it could have been, or Kumail's character or Ice Cube Jr.'s character, like they're in service of the Skywalker story. So their own screen time and real estate and stakes it's never going to matter in the face so, of the story. Somewhere Wade is like, tell me about it, brother. For for real. Although somehow he seemed to matter more than everybody else. The The second piece of it is the macro stakes are already stepped on because nothing new happened other than, oh, I wonder what Darth Vader was referring to in that fight. Oh, they had another fight. You know what I mean? There were There actually wasn't wiggle room to surprise us that didn't just step on like, turning Luke and Leia into Muppet babies who are always their brave, sassy selves who seem to have, like when Luke's like, my life, whole life's been boring, except the time a Jedi hunter chased you into the desert with a lightsaber and your <laughs> adopted parents turned into American sniper. I'm like, where's oh, the, right. me- do you guys get your memories wiped in season two? Of uh, Obi-Wan? Like, what uh, is other happening? than that. <laughs> and then I think the most upsetting thing about, about all of it is that Obi-Wan is revealed to be not a character, you know, and it, which is a bummer. It's his show. He's the star of it. But what what was his journey? What did we learn about him? What was his arc? Other than he is a guy who, at the end of going off world and falling in, you know, paternal love with a sassy nine year old, he's like, the world needs leaders now. The world yeah. is in trouble. Like, great. What are you going to do, Obi Wan Kenobi? I'm going to retire for the rest of my life. That's what you're going to do. Now, I guess maybe it's not. He can talk to Ghost Liam Neeson with his fake beard or maybe that's where season two comes in where he becomes more even more interesting yeah but it's a struggle and so all of this is to say i don't know if we're wrong to be looking at this through the lens of what television or visual storytelling can do i think we are we are veering out of the known galaxy in terms of what what these things are and what's to be expected of them but it's hard not to think about the line the most memorable line in Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi, which is, you know, you have to kill the past and wondering if Lucasfilm is going to digitally retcon that line away like they digitally retcon Han shooting first. Sure. Because this stuff, at least so far, is the opposite of that. Now, I'm not saying it's good or bad, 
but it was interesting and provocative that there was a movie that said you have to do that. And then... I don't think that that movie is being treated as like canonical creative advice. No. Do you? Yeah. I, I don't. And I, I couldn't help think about it for that reason. It was... It's interesting. I mean, so not to go back to, you know, I, I don't want to make this podcast a Thomas Friedman column, or at least any more than it actually is. But like, you know, in the sense that like, I was in a taxi cab in Mumbai, India, and my driver said, that George Bush, he understands tariffs. Yeah. Um, but you talk to Star Wars fans, so. I'm Star Wars fan. I, I, <laughs> like, <laughs> but you know what I, I mean? Like people I, who, I thought I was, yeah. Yeah. But what, what, what do people... How do they talk about the show? Like this is, this gave me some things to think about for a couple of weeks. There's a variety that- of responses. I mean, I think there, I think it increasingly feels like a little bit of a liability to have not watched the animated series in terms yes, of I like agree. your feel for like where things are going and what's happening and who are these characters and what's, why is this meaningful to people? It's because it's like either executing something that's alluded to in the animated series, or maybe even in some cases is in the animated series. Also, Obi Wan and Anakin, and like, are more fully they're just in out there. people in the series, yeah, right? Yeah, right. And I do think that there has been like I had a conversation with our buddy Jason Gallagher yesterday, and it was just basically about like whether or not these these things are made for children, you know. Mm-hmm. And he and I, I was just like, I don't. When I was getting into it in the eighties, it was because it felt just over my head. Like, Mm -hmm. I I, I was young, but Luke was like a late teenager or a teenager, and he was going into this world of adulthood and adult consequences and falling in love and fighting and losing people and finding out who his father was and all this, like, shit. And I was like, it wasn't, like, childlike. I didn't find... I never found it to be, like, this idea that it was somehow, like, about both kids and also kids in danger all the time mm-hmm. uh, was not necessarily like what I thought like I that, that it was about but I think increasingly and I and I do think this is where the business side of it does come in a little bit is like it might be closer to children's programming than I thought you know what I mean and and uh, I usually don't go for that you know so so that that that's that was something that was a little not sobering but like I was like yeah you know what like I don't have kids I don't watch this with a kid I didn't really love when kids came into Star Wars and the prequels. It's nothing against children. I just, it's not really what I'm looking for when I'm like watching these things. And also, like, it doesn't seem increasingly whether it's bending towards Dave Filoni or bending towards like this huge treasure trove of stories that they have on their hands. And like the animated series are essentially mm-hmm. like what comics are to the Marvel movies where they can kind of pick and choose and be like, okay, let's do Secret Wars, let's do this. They can go and be like Thrawn and Ezra and all these people who I'm like, I don't know who that is. And if you are if you don't know who they are, the show has that much more to do to kind of make them compelling characters. But if there's a big enough base of people who are like, I loved Clone Wars and I loved these, these shows, then it's basically like you're realizing like they're kind of like, they're, you're just only animating what was animated for them in the first place, right? Yeah, and you're and you're ending up at a place that is challenging for any medium. I mean, it's why people, a lot of people, walk away from comics at a certain point, from reading comics, not because the ideas or the art or the characters get less cool, but because the the baggage becomes too much to ha- to simultaneously know everything and be surprised is really a challenge. You know, to to constantly be pushing the envelope and change nothing, and that is where we are with Star Wars and Marvel stuff, and specifically, you know. I think we gotta. It's, we don't have to kill the past, 
But I think we do need to walk away from the old guys. And I say yeah. this as two old guys, because I think the two things that have, you know, put a little, given us pause, the Boba Fett stuff and Obi-Wan. Like these are old characters played by older men. And servicing them feels backwards, you know, because I think what worked so well about the first season, two seasons of Mandalorian was it felt a little fresh in the, you know, the quasi new characters, a kind of Boba Fett and a kind of Yoda. So it's a little bit, it's not that radical, but there was a sense of wonder in the world. You know, I I think those shows are for kids in the best way. Like Mm -hmm. they're, they're PG, you know, they're not really even PG 13. And there's, there's something good about that, you know, but the more history and the older the characters get and the more baggage and trauma they've gone through, like it becomes very hard to have a Darth Vader show that's PG. Yeah, um, yeah that's a good you point. You know, and, and, and so so you end up kind of satisfying, I don't, I don't want to say satisfying no one because people are satisfied, but you end up in this unsatisfying place where, you know, they're chasing the path, which isn't the Jedi on their Star Destroyer. And to destroy them. And Obi-Wan's like, don't worry, gang. They'll, they won't destroy you if I leave. And then they don't destroy them because it's a PG show. Yeah. But, and then he doesn't destroy Anakin, even though he was just like, I could just like end this all, all right now. Like, it's, this it's dude just, just told me he's yeah. not Anakin. He's Darth Vader. And like, not to blame himself that he did this. And he's all busted up. And Obi-Wan's like, peace. Later. <laughs> yeah. How'd this play out 10 years ago? Yeah. No props. Everything's fine. It is. It's. It's shout, odd. Shout out to everybody on Alderaan. I'll see you guys later. You, you know what? You know what? You know the way I want to end this. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God! Obi Wan's the monster. People have been doing that. They've been like, "Isn't this like going back in time to kill baby Hitler?" Like you just got to pull the plug at some point. Yes, you do. Jeez, Louise. Um, yeah, I. Uh, I. <laughs> you really? I was about to say something positive. And you threw me off. I guess what I want to say is, for as as. Frustrated as you and I have been sometimes with the storytelling decisions and the sort of, you know, knowing that there's always going to be more for us to cover. Part of me is like, I appreciate watching a almost billion dollar learning curve happen in real time. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I the worst thing that could happen from Obi-Wan would be like, let's just run it back. Yeah. Like, I, I would hope that there's some thought into what this means, who it was for, what they, what they can do. And then we will see that reflected in the next Maybe not Andor, which is already, you know, mostly in the can, I guess. But although you never know with these things, but like the Acolyte, which is coming next year or whatever else is beyond that. Skeleton so, crew. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. But um, I can't say it was satisfying. You want to talk about the bear before we get into my conversation with Jeremy? Oh, my God. I sure do. So Kick us the off. entire season's up now. Uh, it comes from Christopher Storer, who directed a bunch of episodes of Rami, uh, worked as a producer on uh, Eighth Grade, the Bo Burnham movie. His sister, correct? Yeah, Courtney. Courtney Storer is the head chef, right, at John and Vinny's in Los Angeles, and and she is one of the consultants on this show, as well as Maddie Matheson. And by the way, friend of the pod, Hiro Mirai, is an executive producer. An executive producer, so I'm just sort of throwing out some of the, the stakeholders here. Um, it's a show about a guy, played by Jeremy Allen White, named Carmi, who comes back to Chicago after some time at uh, Michelin star restaurants like Noma and French Laundry. And he comes back to Chicago to take over his late brother's beef sandwich restaurant. And there's already like a, a cast of characters in play there. One played by uh, Eben Moss Backrack is this guy, Richie, who is basically 
um, right out, of, right out of like basically mean streets. Uh, he is he is doing like one of the best like seventies Kaitel guys just hanging out in a uh, in a kitchen. It's a great ensemble of people working in this kitchen, and the kitchen feels like a kitchen. Uh, from my whatever limited experience I have from seeing how restaurants of all shapes and sizes work. The intensity, the language, the jargon, the level of immersion you get from this show is, uh, I, I think, unprecedented in terms of it being like on screen. And it is fucking intense. Uh, I think I made the joke to to Jeremy Allen White later in our conversation that it it was like uncut food instead of uncut gems. Mm-hmm. And the first few episodes of this show are, they're, they're like really getting after it. Like it's, it's close-ups, insert shots. Um, constant camera movement, really fast cutting, cuts to clocks ticking. Like it really creates the tension, the the sense of pressure that these guys are all working under when they're making even just a lunch service for working people coming off the street to get a sandwich. Basically the the um sort of what is this show about? It's about Carm trying to elevate the menu with the help of a new sous chef Sydney of this traditional beef restaurant into something we don't know what yet. We don't, you know, you don't know what he wants out of this. I think that's a lot of the show is about him kind of looking inside of himself and asking himself, like, what what is my relationship to food? What is my relationship to my family? What is my relationship to my late brother? And what kind of world do I want to like create? And it's using this kitchen as like a microcosm for, and I think a lot of people see kitchens as a microcosm for the world is like, what what's the way that we should treat one another? What, what do we want to leave behind? What feeling do we want to give people when they interact with our food or interact with us? And it's a beautiful fucking show. It's super intense. It can get dark. It can get edgy. But it's like, I, I just felt like a huge heart in this show. A huge heart. And it, it felt really, really, really lived in and ultimately very, very sweet. And I, I, I watched the entire season already. It's the entire season is up. I, I think once people start, they're not going to stop. Andy, what did you think of the episodes that you've seen so far? I've seen six just because I'm sort of coursing it out because I love it so much and hopefully there'll be more, but at least not for a year. Um, and to your point earlier, Chris, I should just tell people we're not spoiling it right now, but I think you and Jeremy spoiled it a little bit. Yeah. You wouldn't think a show like this could be spoiled, but there's some cameos. There's some surprises. I would stay unspoiled if you could yeah, there's and some just like, enjoy it as it happens. Yeah, I think maybe um, Monday or whatever, we can talk a little bit more about it in depth. I love this show. It's my favorite new show of the year. It's, you know, I'm not thinking about top 10 lists, but it's on it. And I don't even know what number it's going to be at. There are three main reasons why I love the show. And you touched on aspects of all of them. I just want to run through it. One, you guys know I love food content. I love food TV. I love Top Chef. I like food and restaurants and cooking in my life. And I know that like the music industry, another thing that has been a part of my actual life and that I love, it's a tough sell unscripted TV because of the accuracy problem. You know, where do you, it, 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 if it's phony, it's ruined, you know, and it's very, very hard to get it right. Again, I have never worked in kitchens, whether they be three star or a local sandwich shack, but I watch, I consume a lot of content about these places. And from my experience, this show nails it and does it in a way that doesn't make it seem show offy. It actually is such a brilliant conceit because Carmi is returning with these three-star uh, tendencies that, you know, if how you conduct yourself in the kitchen and your, your, your cleanliness and your order and how you speak to each other. And everyone in this place is like, what are you talking about? Yeah. So he educates 
us and them at the same time, which is a very smart conceit. I love the way food is in this show. I think it's just brilliantly done. Two, you guys know this too. I love TV that does the most old-fashioned type of TV, which is take you to a place you've never been and make you fall in love with every single person there and everything about it. And this show is deeply, purely unadulterated Chicago. They shot there. It's real Chicago. It's not like, you know, um, what's it, the Miracle Mile or whatever. It's not like North Shore. This is like, these are White Sox fans. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> these are people who have lived in a place that is one of the most that places in the country, let alone maybe in the world. And uh, I, I love that about it. And I love every single person on the show and would, uh, f- you know, fight for them, even though I've only spent six half hours in their company, which leads into the third point, which is when the show was announced and it kind of flew under the radar, right? But it's like, oh, okay, FX is making a, uh, a a comedy set in the restaurant world. Interested, a hero's involved. Then it says Maddie Matheson is a consultant. And then it's Jeremy Allen White, who's an actor who I really think is excellent on Shameless was really good on Homecoming. He's so but good isn't on like, Yeah. But he's not like famous, right? I'm like, oh, what, what is this? And then the cast is filled out with like people like Evan Moss Backrack, who people, you know, he's really good. He's good in girls. He's good in everything he's in. But these are not famous people. And you're like, which direction is this going in? And the direction it went in was, we're going to make the best fucking version of this show and we're going to make stars. Mm-hmm. We're going to make you learn these people's names and Google them and love them. I love it when that happens. And it's increasingly rare, right? I mean, we spent the top half of the show talking about Game of Thrones and Star Wars and all the famous people that are joining those worlds. Like, this is not that. This is creating something out of scratch that that I just adore. So you mentioned that the young chef who comes to the kitchen is Ayo Edabiri. Yeah. Edabiri, who's a young comedian and she does a voice on Big Mouth. She's awesome. She's completely this she's person incredible. and she is funny and she's a really good actor and you're psyched to see her. And now I want to see her in everything that she does. There's a character who bakes the bread for the sandwiches named Marcus, who over the course of the season kind of falls in love with the Noma fermentation book and wants to make perfect desserts. And he's played by an actor named Lionel Boyce, who now, because I immediately Googled him because I want to be best friends with him. He's like part of uh, Tyler, the creator squad and, and, you know, has worked with him on comedy things and has other projects set up everywhere. He's awesome. And he's awesome because I'm discovering him. You know, that's part of the joy yeah. of a show like this. And Chris, you already said it, but like Evan Mossbachrach's performance is my favorite TV performance of the year, maybe. And it's, this is a show about food, but that's also a television show about hunger. I don't know this guy, right? He's exactly our age. He's a working actor in New York. Everybody who's also an actor knows him and talks about him. But the feeling I get from watching the show is that he's been sitting patiently while everyone else ate for years. And now he's like, it's my turn yeah. at, at the buffet table and I'm going to go. And he has a moment in the second episode where he literally turns on a dime from being the most ludicrous, like yelling Attica, but, you know, about sandwiches version of a character into something completely unexpected and emotional. I mean, it is jaw-dropping performance, right? And it's just like, just a part of this larger menu. The show it, rules. It's also like the best possible example of like what you can do in 30 minutes in eight episodes because yeah. no two episodes are exactly alike. And they can do broad comedy. They can do heartbreaking tragedy. They can do romantic, wistful nostalgia. They can do essentially like a thriller, but around a kitchen, you know, I, they, they can do anything that they want with this show. 
And I can't wait for people to see it. And I really hope that they keep making it because I think it could go in a bunch of different directions. Can I also just say, I love, for many reasons, a showrunner who I think is also the music supervisor. And I think that Chris Storer is is that. And there are needle drops in the show that are so chosen, you know, and in not as in not suggested by someone who works at the studio or does the licensing. Like there's a breeder's needle drop that caused me to slightly elevate from the floor. There is a reclamation project of an REM song from their last record, Collapse Into Now, that just made my day and filled mm-hmm. me with joy, you know, because it, it's someone who's thinking about this stuff, not just thinking about the way the beef is going to cook and look. It's just how the whole thing is going to feel. The show's so well directed, too. Like, I don't know. We ra- we're raving, but it makes me happy that this exists. It makes me really happy. Yeah, Joanna Callow and Christopher Story, I think, did the whole season directing. Yes, as co-showrunners, and then they toggled yeah. off the direction. So I, they did an amazing job. This, this is one of my favorite shows of the year. We say that. It seems like we say that every week. Uh, we'll it's be talking. Big, it's been a good year, right? Yeah. Like, we get to go on Monday. We can talk about Boys, Old Man, Episode 3, and we can go more in-depth with The Bear. And those are three of my favorite shows of the year. And they've all come out within the last, six, like, three weeks. Also, weeks. this has reminded me that there's a new Iron Chef show and on Netflix, and I, I got to check it out. We got to talk about that. I, you know what? I'm kind of like a noob with Iron Chef. Oh, get ready. I'm yeah. ready to talk you through it. Okay. Uh, we'll be back. We'll talk about the bear. We'll talk about the old man. We'll talk about boys. We'll talk about Iron Chef. We'll talk about whatever you want on Monday. Thank you to Kai McMuller for producing. We're going to get into my interview with Jeremy Allen White, the star of the bear. Just so you guys know, as that conversation progresses, Jeremy and I do talk about some of the spoilery aspects of the, the show. It's more about where his character goes, some of the things that happen towards the end of the season. I would love it if you listen to it. If you want, put a pin in it, come back, listen to it after you've watched a few more episodes. I would say the most helpful thing would probably be to just watch the season and then check out the interview. But you can listen to about the first 10 minutes or so. And it's it's a pretty good introduction to the show. And it's really cool to hear about Jeremy's prep and why he did this ep- this did this show and and everything else. So thanks for listening. And we'll be back on Monday. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me, man. Uh, yeah, I wanted to ask me. you first off about the bear. Where were you at as an actor when this script comes to you and this idea comes to you and you're like, this is the next thing I want to do? Like, and, and what was it about this project specifically that, that made that decision happen? Yeah, I mean, I got, I got really lucky. I, you know, um, we finished the last season of Shameless just over a year ago now, I guess. And, and so I'd been thinking a long time about like, do I want to jump into a show? Will I have the option, even the opportunity to jump right into a show like right after? Do I want to stay away from TV for a little bit and kind of try to do some other stuff? Or like, I was really kind of uncertain about where I would end up. And I got really lucky. I, I did this movie a couple of years ago called The Rental and Chris Storer, who's the creator, co-showrunner, co-director on The Bear, produced The Rental. And so I got to meet him, spend some time with him during that production. We really enjoyed one another. I think he has really great taste. I liked his work with Rami and his work as a producer. And I got lucky. I mean, I, I don't think we were even done filming season 11 of Shameless yet. And I kind of got into like early talks with Chris. He sent me the script, which I was just really, I was really struck by. I was struck by Carmi. I was really interested in the culinary world and, and what makes these guys, these like chefs at that level really tick. And I, I, my heart really broke for Carmi. I think like he's like, he's a young man and his identity is so wrapped up in being a chef and being successful he's so determined, um, immediately. Um, and I thought it was really interesting to play a character where it really feels life and death all the time for him. I think if he didn't have this thing, if he didn't have restaurants, if, if he, if he wasn't a chef, I don't, I don't know what he would do with himself. And, and so I think that was like an exciting, like in to, to get started on, on the character, you know? The thing I love the most about about this show, but also like I think I'm attracted to it in a lot of, of movies and shows that I love is the level of immersion and mm. how it just kind of like throws you into the deep end. And it's like, you may not know what Brigade is or what Expo is, but you or guys never... Like what these relationships are at the beginning. I, you at know all. what I mean? You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you guys never pump the brakes to say, you know, because it's like that Sydney character could be it could be her first day on the job and she could be you're, she's the audience avatar and she's learning what these things are but i love that it's not like that 
as an actor, is there something, do you get like a special juice when you get to kind of fully lose yourself in the occupation and world of the character like that? Totally. I mean, that's, that was another part that was really exciting about this. Like I've, I've like picked up things here or there, I guess for other roles, but not even really. And, and certainly nowhere close to kind of like learning the skill of, of cooking. I spent a lot of time in culinary school. When I got the part, I spent a lot of time in some like really wonderful restaurants with some incredibly talented chefs, not only getting to know them, asking them questions, but like performing with them and and cooking with them. And so, yeah, it, it, it was like an, uh, a really fun way to get to know a character by, by learning a skill and going through these steps that, you know, they had also gone through. I had never had an opportunity like that before. And I'm so appreciative of like the production was immediately so supportive, like as much as I wanted to do and I wanted to do a lot, they made it happen. And that was, yeah, very exciting. As like a, as a diner, were you ever like a big, like what's going on back there guy, or was this a whole new world for you? It it was pretty much a whole new world. I mean, like I think chefs and back of house, like in, in recent years, maybe the past 10 years, like they have become kind of pop culture icons. So I, I do I had an understanding, I think, as, as everybody does of like, like I knew about Anthony Bourdain. I loved his show. I'd read some of his book, but then I read like Marco Pierre White's book and I was really trying to learn a lot more. And myself, I had no experience. Like I like to go out to a good meal. I had like some places that, you know, I enjoyed, but I didn't understand really the inner workings of a kitchen I also didn't understand like the incredible sacrifice that cooks and chefs um, make in order to become really excellent in their, in their field. You know, I'm pretty struck by the similarities between restaurant cooking and acting, not necessarily, or or rather like production because they both eventually wind up with giving a consumer something that gives them pleasure, but so much shit happens before that. And the, the, like the experience of getting to see how the sausage is made. I mean, you, I'm sure like you work 12, 14 hour days. Like there's a lot of heavy equipment moving around. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of emotions. Were you, were you struck too by like, oh man, this is a lot like what I already do in some ways. Yes. In some ways, like almost immediately. Yes. Uh, like I think you nailed it. It's, it's the, the tensions run incredibly high. Um, like as an example, you know, let's say you have an hour, like that magic hour shot, everybody's really rushing. The day's already behind. We're cutting scenes to try and like get to this moment. Like that tension can certainly be there on sets and, and beyond that tension. It's also like, hopefully on, on a film set and hopefully the staff of a restaurant they all have a goal as a group that they want to accomplish, right? There, there is this one thing that they go, if we can all do our jobs the best that we possibly can, then we can make this service uh, for the consumer as good as possible. So I think it's also like, it was interesting, like just depending on one another, really picking up where, where others left off. That was always that was familiar to me having worked on sets for a long time because it's, it's similar. Like the camaraderie is similar um, certainly in uh, in the back of house to, to sets. Yeah. I mean, and then you get into the visual aspect of this show, which I think people will sort of be struck by this within five seconds of watching it where 
those early episodes, those first two especially, it's like uncut gems, basically. Like you're, the camera is like pushed up so close. I think there's like more insert shots in like those first two episodes than you get in like, uh, like <laughs> you get it's like a Fincher amount of insert shots of like totally. knife work, food, everything. The clock, so, like that, like zoom on the clock, I thought was so cool throughout the first episode, especially. And can you tell me a little bit about working within that visual palette? Like, is it different than like your usual, like, oh, master one, one, like that kind of thing? Like, do you know Christopher saying to you, like, this is how it's going to feel? This is what I want you to kind of the part you need to play to make the visual aspect of this work? Yeah. I mean, I learned a lot. I hadn't really worked in that way before. And I had to kind of learn very quickly and also like trust our DP and Chris very quickly because yes, we did all these inserts, all these close-ups. We do a lot of long takes without any coverage. And so, you know, for, for an actor, you know, hopefully every take is excellent. You're performing at your best, but I think if you cover a scene sort of traditionally, you know that a really great editor can maybe like piece something together and make you look better than maybe you were on the day. Um, So, so there was like a lot of pressure to show up and be ready and perform right away because of the way that the show was shot. And we also shot incredibly quickly. I think we shot the pilot in six days. We shot after we went to series, the next seven episodes and like maybe even a a little less than two months. So it, it was like, the pace was intense and I think I just had to like let go and trust Chris and Joanna and our wonderful DPs that, that they were getting everything they needed, that the story all, all connected and, and that we were giving them the performance that was, was necessary. You know? Did you find though that like you get to like act in a different way though? Where like, you know, cause there's a lot of like shots where it's like you're maybe rolling your eyes or looking up at something, but like maybe someone else is the kind of like key of the shot or the key of the scene. Yeah. Yeah, The focal point, like it's, 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 and, and then, you know, and later in the season, uh, there is a, a one -er episode that is essentially like, I can't imagine how that was like to orchestrate, but is a piece of theater in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I, I grew up, studying theater i haven't done a lot of theater but that's that's how i learned and like you find comfort in it's like the most vulnerable but once you can kind of like get over that hurdle and fear it's it's kind of the most fun you can possibly have as an actor because someone could be watching you at all times and and so for me it's just it's easier to get lost in the story shooting scenes that way and then certainly yeah in episode uh, 7 where we do it in one take. That was the most fun. I think, you know, we, we shot it like five times just in one morning. It took us about 27 minutes to shoot. So we would just shoot it in 27 minutes. Then there was like a pretty extensive, like reset, obviously for for props and stuff like that. Um, (laughs) but not that like half an hour, maybe. So we were able to shoot them all really, really quickly. And it was so fun because your adrenaline is so high the room for error is so low. And I think like shooting that episode that way, it it lent itself to the final product because we're anxious as the actors that any mistake could not only ruin my take, but maybe that was Io's best take. Maybe that was Eben's best take. Maybe that was Lionel's best take. Like there's so much pressure 
And I think in that episode, there's so much pressure for the characters as well. So I think, I think it, it worked really well and it, it made sense to shoot that episode that way. Yeah, you can, I mean, because I think that there are lots of things you can do to just kind of be like, it's not, it's not like director bullshit, but it's like, oh, like this is what a cool shot. Like we right, did this, this and it's cool. just like, yeah, without a reason. But what does that mean for the story? Yeah. Totally. And this is, this is yeah. like a breaking point for a bunch of the characters. You mentioned Io. I love the relationship that you guys have over the course of the season. And she's amazing. The thing, yeah. Yeah. And the, the sort of like, it, it's spoken a little bit, but Carm and Sydney both agree that there is a better way to do this out there. Like they know because mm-hmm. they've been through these sort of traumatic kitchen experiences and have maybe been cast out of the cooking world because of their resistance to that at times. Mm-hmm. Like that's such an awesome plot line to go watch go through it because it's almost like watching the two of them fall short of their ideals is is kind of heartbreaking and, and it's like they don't have anybody else to blame but each other, but like even they can't make this place the kitchen of their dreams. Did you talk a lot with Io about that as as actors, and and what was the conversation like with Christopher about that that plot line? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what we would speak about is how you know you have you have Carmi, who's like a I'll say a poor communicator, right? Mm-hmm. He's he's not he's not great with his words. He's not great communicating how he's feeling um, or what he wants, even necessarily. And then you have Sydney, who's almost like an over communicator like she gives so much and i think at times for carmy it could be overwhelming so we we talk a lot about kind of like the the comedy in that maybe not like knee slapping comedy but like just having two people like that talk to one another and really not being able to connect how that could be kind of funny and then yeah i mean i I think like ego is also such a, like it's something we have to talk about when talking about Carmi and, and Sydney for both of them, but more especially, I think for, for, for Carmi, you know, he does feel such a uh, ownership, obviously, and a a responsibility to this restaurant. And you realize as the show goes on, you know, obviously it's pretty easy to see that it's, there's a bit of a metaphor. If he can fix this restaurant, maybe he can fix whatever went wrong with his brother. And, and so I think while he needs Sydney's help and at times he's really asking her for that help, it's also very difficult for him to, to accept it because he's territorial and he wants it to be, to be his so much. And he feels like it's his work that he has to do. So I think like that just makes for good drama and and tension when, when somebody like is asking for help, even like screaming for help, but is also, incapable of, of accepting it you know uh you also a few minutes ago mentioned evan who is basically yes. like the molotov cocktail on this show and and is walking in and i always like really get excited when he first enters an episode because he has so many different ways of greeting people usually really rudely but like what's sure. up fucking replicants and stuff like that yeah it, yeah was was there improv going on at all or is that all like th- this guy richie is like this i mean because i would wonder whether with the way you guys were shooting, whether that was encouraged to kind of just get loose and be in character and start talking shit to each other. For sure. Yeah. I mean, the writing is really excellent and you you don't really need to do anything with it. I never really did anything with it. Um, unless Eben was like really challenging me sometimes (laughs) I throw stuff out. Um, but yeah, Eben, Eben is like really, really excellent with improvisation. 
And it was like overwhelming sometimes to act with him because sometimes, and he knows this too, but sometimes it would almost like take over the scene. And, you know, I would be like, is this what the scene's about? Like, he's just, he's so good at it. He like has to, but he also, you know, he would throw out some of his best lines that really got everybody like rolling on the floor, like during rehearsal when cameras weren't rolling so that Eben could see if it suited it before he like used it in a take. So he was just like really loose and really playful the whole time. And I think that's nice because, you know, Carmi is sort of the opposite. He's like so tightly wound. I think it's, it's, it's nice to see those two, those two characters together and like play off one another. Uh, so I want to ask you a couple of questions that relate to sort of the end of the season. So for folks, when they're listening to this interview, it'll go up when the season goes up. I, I imagine they're going to watch it in a weekend because it's it's one it's something that when you start watching it, you don't want to stop. But um, Carmi obviously has this big speech at an Al-Anon meeting that I was yeah. really struck by because the whole season you're kind of wondering, it's not like whether this guy is in touch with his, his emotions or articulate. But I imagine doing a big, long monologue like that for a guy who's been kind of suppressing a lot of this sh- stuff for most of the time that we're with him. Mm-hmm. It's complicated because it's like, we're, what, how, how, like, basically, how in touch with himself is he? Like, how articulate is he about all of these things? And what's he learning from his sister and from Al-Anon? Can you tell me a little bit about shooting that scene and what, what you were kind of, how you approached it? Because I thought it was like a beautiful, beautiful piece of acting, but also like, really striking because it's like this turn from him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it was important to me to make it seem like Carmi was making a lot of these discoveries like in the moment. And there was, there's this other scene that he has with his sister, Sugar. I think it was in the prior episode where he's kind of talking about like communication and the idea of being vulnerable. and. I think what I wanted to come across was like, you know, I don't, I don't have experiences in Al-Anon rooms or anything like that, but, but I just, I I had to imagine what, what a vulnerable position, especially your, your first time really speaking in one, you know, he, it's clear he's been going to these meetings, but he's just been too afraid to, to speak. And so I think what I wanted that scene to be was him sort of like letting his guard down, becoming sort of vulnerable for the first time. And then just by talking, like making these, making these discoveries about himself by kind of just like telling his story, which I don't think he's ever really done before. Like everybody has their own kind of like narrative in their head of like what their life is and, and what it's been like. But if you don't vocalize it, I think it can get pretty confusing. And so I think like it was, it was so wonderfully written and like such a a really like exciting moment as an actor to approach because I think it's the first time he's putting it into words and he's really able to be so vulnerable and at the same time make discoveries about himself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the entire time there's also like the kind of subtext of Carmi is essentially cooking Mike's food and he's like tweaking it and tweaking it, tweaking it. And then finally is able to kind of tear down the menu at the end. Uh, I have to ask you guys, if, or if you guys knew that you were like hitting the Burnthal stock 
at the absolute right moment in like popular culture history where like I just feel like that he's just on such a heater right now and it was yeah. just when he when you hear his voice yeah uh in that first introduction of it you're just like oh my god oh birth yeah. all his mic <laughs> yes dude he's like um he's, have you seen we own this city at all yet I guess that's why I'm asking I the, the I, I haven't watched it yet, um, but I'm really excited. Obviously, I've, I'm, I'm such a big fan of all those um, uh, writers, filmmakers. Um, but yeah, he's like, first of all, so lovely just as a as a guy. Like, it's a very hard thing to do to like pop onto a show for a scene, really, and then like really take over that that scene. And he just came he was like so incredibly like gracious and humble. And then beyond that, he's obviously like, I mean, he's one of the best actors. His like, his charisma is really unmatched. And he's like, you know, he's just got that thing. Like he's a movie. He's like the real deal, you know? Um, and we were so lucky to have him do it. He, um, and it was like, it was kind of a favor. I mean, he like obviously read the scripts and, and enjoyed it. And I think he was like happy to be there, but, um, but Eben uh, was on the Punisher for a long time. So him and Eben were pretty good friends. And I think Eben just like sent the script and was like, Hey man, do you have time to do this? And we shot it on a weekend in LA. He had to like be up the next morning. Cause he was shooting American gigolo. Like the next morning, yeah. he had like a 6am crew call. So we shot it on a Sunday. It was, it was just really kind of him and he delivered fully. Cause it's like Mike kind of looms over the show. For and sure, he's it's, a ghost. It's yeah, a, yeah and, but it's amazing in that scene. Like, there's another version of this that's a that's Mike's story, and like it, you can just see Richie and Carm and Sugar are just in love with this guy. Yeah, and it makes yeah. the entire like pain of everything that they've they're going through it like clicks all of a sudden. He's not just this abstraction. Totally, and it was like a weird thing to do for me too because like, you know. I've been thinking about Michael for so long, not being able to like attach a face to him really, but I really had to like create Michael for Carmi. So it was like, it's a weird thing. Like, you know, I mean, I'm such a huge fan. So I was so happy to hear it, but it's just a weird thing to be like imagining someone for so long. And they're like, yeah. it's John Bernthal. He's going <laughs> to be there. Um, but yeah, he's, he's magic. I don't know what else to, to say about it, but, but yeah, we, we were so lucky to have him. I think the scene really worked and also like really magic that just like there's just this like brief moment where he kind of turns over his shoulder and looks at me and I look at him and like, um, it just, it worked really well. Uh, my last question is, has doing this show changed going to restaurants for you? Like when you go now? Yeah. Like uh, a thousand percent. I'm kind of a jerk in restaurants now. Um, are you really? Yeah. I mean, never to like staff or anything like that, but yeah, like I just, I know how things, I know how things work a little bit more and I've worked in some really high level uh, environments now. And I just like, I have so much respect and appreciation for chefs and when things are done incredibly well that, yeah, I just, you know, and maybe it's like a little bit of like Carmi brushing off on me and it's like, whatever like his ego and my ego have become like uh, a <laughs> <same> <laughs> or something yeah, yeah yeah um i wonder if you could can you tell when they're having a bad night can you be like oh man 
Like I can almost sense like this, there's something going on. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that happens all the time. Like, you know, I, I worked at a really excellent restaurant. I'm not going to name the restaurant and I'm, I'm not going to even say what city it was in. Um, but shit happens. Like people show up and they're burnt out. Like I was at this one restaurant and this guy was kind of all night I was cooking next to him and he was having an issue with his peripheral vision due to like anxiety. And he'd been dealing with it for a while and he just had to leave. He like left service and there's only like three or four cooks back there. So it messes everything up. And then like, you know, a dishwasher can show up wasted that messes up their night. Now somebody has got to stay later, which means they're going to be there the next day with like three hours of sleep instead of six hours of sleep. You know, everybody's got to show up. Um, everybody's got to be on top of their game. And and when one thing kind of falls apart, it's hard for everybody else to, to pick up the pieces. Well, I mean, if the acting thing doesn't work out, you should, you should do restaurant rescue. You should start your own reality Dude, show. You're just, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm into, I'm, I'm into it. I mean, I'm, I'm such a fan of, uh, of these chefs and, and cooks that I've spent time with. And, um, um, it's definitely a skill I've learned and I want to keep honing whether we get to continue with the show or not. I, I enjoy it for sure. Well, I really hope you do because it's yeah. just an amazing, amazing show, man. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Thank you, man. So nice talking to you. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.